This is a sermon podcast from Ashland First United Methodist Church in Ashland, Oregon. Visit us online at ashlandmethodist.org for more sermons like this, church information, and how to get involved. Ashland Methodist, a community of open hearts, open minds, and open doors. We're also going to be wrapping up today. This is our last Sunday where we're talking about Cain and Abel, where we think about the story again. And we have been, you probably noticed, moving into drawing other stories in as a way to better understand what the themes of God are that are at work. Last week, we talked about the uh, story of the lost sheep. And the story of the lost sheep is pretty simple. It is so often represented to us in our storybooks as this most adorable little spring lamb. And the little lamb goes missing. And we all imagine, we all feel the heart pull of this wee innocent one. And we move mountains to find them imagining hearing their cries, or perhaps really hearing it echo through the, the, through the rocks or the canyons. We put on our warm coats and our boots and extra batteries for the flashlight and search through the night. Last week, though, we wanted to explore a different side of this lost sheep story since in the Bible it is not specified that this is a wee innocent lamb. And those of you who were here last week know that rather than this lamb, it might very well be this one that we are in search of. And there he has his fireball whiskey. That the story actually ends saying that God rejoices in the lost sinner returned. And sometimes we forget that. Sometimes we think that only if we are innocent are we worth searching for. How many of you are innocent as a wee lamb? Oh, I got one. Got one in the back. How many hope that if you got lost, someone would still come looking for you? Right? So we have to be very careful how we read these stories for the underlying intent of what they mean. So in the Cain and Abel story, we have just to quickly give a synopsis for that. Adam and Eve leave the garden, and they have their first child, Cain, and they rejoice. And they have their second child, Abel, and they rejoice. And the boys grow up, and we're not given any information about who they are. All we know is one day Cain has grown up to be a farmer, and Abel has grown up to be a rancher, and they bring their offerings to God. And God favors Abel's offering. And Cain is crestfallen, ashamed, resentful. He is the older brother. And he stalks off, and God finds him and says, Don't. What is going on for you? Live a good life. Lead a quiet life. Do the right things. Good things will come. And if you don't beware, for sin lies at the door. 
You must be the master of it. Cain is not a good listener in this moment. He nurses that resentment, and he invites his brother out into the field and attacks him and kills him. So all of the commentaries for, for the most recent hundred years that I sort of can read through them, hopefully there are some I missed that do differently, but the earlier commentaries do not always have this theme, but there is a desire on our human side to make Cain bad in order to better understand the story. We want to wrap it up with a nice pretty package and put a bow on it so we understand. But these stories are not built for human understanding. These stories are built for human wrestling. Jacob wrestles with God. They are intended to interrupt what we think we know about ourselves and about God and invite us into a new way of understanding. There is absolutely nothing that suggests that Abel is the innocent brother and Cain is evil. Maybe Cain, Abel isn't so innocent after all. Okay, now I'm going to take a little divergence. Some of us hate it when I do that, so those of you who do, gird your loins. Others of us quite like it, so here we go. It's a short segue that we're going to talk about, ready? Exegesis, right? It is how we learn to interpret the text. And I want you to think of it. I'm going to give us a, this, oop, there we go. Imagine you are a geologist or a biologist, and you are lying on your stomach in a cool forest. Your hands are on the soft moss, and you are looking into a clear pool of water, a pond that you are studying to learn more about. The water is like a text, right? There are things about it that you can read. You know that there is ice on the top. This particular season must be spring or autumn. You can see the fall leaves in under the water, and you can simply come to the text, come to the pool, and notice what is there, what has been written there. You can notice the stones, what type of stones, and you can ask yourself, wow, these are so smooth and small, and they look like the same kind that are on the cliffs hundreds of miles up north. And the water flows from that direction. And you wonder if these stones so small have come from there, tumbling a long time. And we learn about, we learn about the pond as it is, as it is. You see small fish and you don't recognize them. And you wonder, wow, i got to figure out what this fish is. I haven't seen this fish in here before. I didn't even know it was in here. But there it is again, darting through the water. In exegesis, you are drawing out the text, the pool, the things that you notice that are in there. And in the best case scenario, you have a clean pond to work with. And what you draw out is clearly part of the story, part of the pond. But we run into trouble with two things called eisegesis and I like to call 
do you, Jesus? And we won't. I'm just going to give you those words, just whatever you want to do with them. But what it means is, with eisegesis, we're sticking stuff in the pond that isn't supposed to be there. Like, let's say you're thirsty, and so you got a Coca-Cola right next to you uh, on the moss, and you get finished drinking the Coca-Cola, and then you put it in the water. Please don't do this, but let's just say you do. The next thing you do is you look down and you see the Coke can there, and you add it into the story. Oh, look, Jesus drank Coke. There's a Coke in there. In fact, Jesus must have put the rocks in this story on purpose to hold the Coke from going with the current. And the next thing you know, in Bible interpretation, we get things like this. Share your life with Jesus, the Coke can says. Like and share if you are the real thing. So this isn't really in the pond. I'm just going to put that out there. It's not really in the pond. And, you know, it's kind of crazy talk to come to, to imagine that that, so we all are going to bring things to the story. And you have to be really careful because there's the other danger, which I call dia Jesus, which is that you come to the pond and other people have already left things behind. Things like bottle caps or gum wrappers or bits of cast-off clothing, or a blue plastic container, and it says, Jesus hates turtles on it. And if you're not careful, you're going to assume that this is part of the story and that Jesus really does hate turtles. And I have to ask you, why would Jesus hate turtles? One of the difficult things is, you, you come, you, we don't necessarily come fresh to these stories, but we come with all this baggage that we have carried with us like the wee lamb. We just assume the wee lamb is innocent and small. We just assume that the blue plastic container has always been there. It's just part of the story. And then you remember the last time you were here, there were two scary and sweaty guys hanging around the pond yelling about Satan and how Jesus hates turtles. And then you have to blink multiple times because you realize those two sweaty guys are in there in their 20, 20th century haircuts and their plastic lies about turtles. You gotta beware in coming to these stories. Of course, we all bring ourselves to the text, even just in our reflection. Because we are human and God blessed us with senses and subjectivity. We can smell the water. Can you smell the moss, the lichen in the forest, how damp that smell is? And there's a little bit of moss in the corners between your fingers. And your tummy might be damp from laying down. There's probably an ant crawling on your socks. You are a sensing being. You are supposed to bring yourself. Just not insert yourself. And that gives us all these wonderful ways into the text. All these different threads of the story that all go back to the actual pond and not the sweaty guys. 
So as we finish up the story of Cain and Abel, it is important that part of our practice when we come to the Bible is to hold the door open for new possibilities. Don't accept established answers without giving them a bit of a poke to see if they hold up. God's not afraid of a poke, although some sweaty guy might be, right? Does his argument hold up? Does it become part of the treasured tradition of our great Christian conversation? Or are they just spreading lies about turtles, right? So, here we go. We've always assumed what? That Cain is evil and Abel is innocent. What if Abel is kind of a jerk? In the story, we hear about God's little chats with Cain, right? But for all we know, God has been eye-rolling over Abel since that kid was born. Maybe, we're just going to play with the possibilities here since we don't know, maybe Abel has been letting his sheep get fat on Cain's good grain for years. Maybe he was leaving old wineskins just wherever and gumming up the work of the hoe so that Cain had to work extra hours in the sun. Farming is backbreaking work. Cain is up at dawn, and then Abel just sits there under the trees laughing when the hoe gets stuck. Abel napped in the grass also when the sheep stirred for breakfast and trampled all of Cain's new plantings. Then Abel claimed that the whole new planted field was actually his and diverted the um, irrigation to make a great big trough for his sheep so that he didn't have to get up and take them to the stream. So given all this, it would perhaps make it all the more galling for the two brothers when they bring their gifts and God favors Abel's gifts instead of Cain's. How many have been in a totally monstrously unfair situation like this? Right? So it doesn't change a lot of the story to think about it like this because nothing is said about Cain being evil or about Abel being evil. Um, these, so, but the trouble is, be suspicious of anything that brings you to a pat ending. So, um, so, okay, so we're going to take the Cain and Abel story of two brothers, and we're going to lay it over the story of the prodigal son. And the first thing I'm going to ask you is, what does the word prodigal mean? Anybody want to throw a guess out? Generous? A word? Repentant? I heard it as a child as gifted, right? Uh, that somehow wonderful, wonderful gifted child. So in general, this word does not mean what you think it means. Although we heard wayward, that was good. So the word, the positive connotations for prodigal didn't come about until the 1700s where literally our desire to make the text mean something changed the word meaning itself. Uh, before the 1700s and still today, it means reckless, wasteful, monstrous, ominous, abnormal, and not in small amounts. 
reckless in prodigious amounts, meaning a lot, a whole lot. And yes, the word marvelous is in definition too, but not in a good way, like you were just marveling at how wasteful that guy is, how he takes what has been entrusted to his family generation after generation, and he treats it like his personal piggy bank and uses it to uh, his own advantage and the family's potential destruction. So who in this story is the good brother? So here is the version, short version, of the prodigal son story as I heard it as a child with my ears from the influences of my church. There was a father that had two sons. The younger son asked his father if he could have his inheritance early so that he could go out and make his fortune. The father was pleased by the son's can-do attitude and knowing him to be very gifted, gave him what was already going to be his anyway, just a little early. The son was young and still learning, so he got caught up in a bad crowd. He ended up spending his money on the nightlife, at bars and parties. Instead of making his fortune, he ended up broke. He was still willing to work hard, though, so he went to a good friend of his and asked for a job. He was still trying to make his fortune, but now he was really struggling and hungry. He worked as a farmhand at a stinky job nobody else really wanted, so shows his dedication. Eventually, though, his friend couldn't afford to keep him on. He was still broke, though, and he had no one who would hire him, so he went back home to his father. His father had been so worried about him. Even though he had blown through all the money and had not made his fortune, he had built a lot of character. His father knew he could be a true success someday. He was also just relieved to see him and rush across the village to give him a big hug and order a big feast. Everyone was so glad that there was so much celebrating that night, and the only person who was not happy was the older brother, who was resentful and envious and did not celebrate at all. Anybody get a little of that? Or am I in left field? Okay, so I'm seeing some people kind of, that's what we get. Then I went to seminary, okay? Hold on to your boots. I laugh because it's so different when you dig in, when you pull out those two sweaty guys that were in the pond and you tell them to go somewhere else. Here's the story. Using a thread of what I understand now. Remember, it's a huge story. It was one thread. There was a relatively well-off village family. They owned a large enough portion of land that with good effort, the land contributed to the village and was able to support a sizable household. The father was the head of the family, and it was his responsibility to see that the whole family, from the small babies to the older grandparents, had enough to eat and live honorably. Everyone pitched in. The man had two sons. By law, the older son inherited a two-thirds portion, but a full one-third of everything they had belonged to the younger son on the day of the father's death. The sons then, in a continuum father to son, would become the next patriarchs, ensuring the well-being of the family and contributing to the well-being of the whole village. One day, the younger son asked to be freed of any obligation to the family and the village. He didn't want to be part of the family anymore and wished them dead. He said that he wanted his father pretending like he was already dead so he could have the third or maybe even a full half that belonged to him 
and in cash money to do whatever he wanted with. The father complied, selling a full third at least, if not half, of the land that the, that the family needed to survive and help support the village. He gave the money to his son, who promptly ran off with it. The son wasted every dime on prostitutes and petty criminal activities. He partied so hard no one wanted to befriend him or help him. His reputation was so bad that his contribution was so low that even the one sort of friend he had tried to get rid of him by asking him to do the one job he would never take, caring for the pigs. Because the prodigal son was Judean, his Greek friend knew the pigs were unclean to him, but the son did not care about anything except his next meal or his next drink, and he took the job. Eventually, the friend managed to get rid of him, and with nowhere else to go, the prodigal son headed home, and he thought, well, at least I'm going to eat. When he arrived, the villagers were not happy to see him. In fact, they did not want him back, and the mob started to form to be rid of him. The father saw this commotion and, forgetting his honor, ran across the village to get there first. He lavished gifts on his son so the villagers would see that he would protect his son from the law of the village and the consequences of his actions. He then ordered the fatted calf to be prepared for a feast to mollify the villagers so they wouldn't be angry. The older son saw this behavior of the son and of the father and was angry and resentful at how reckless it was. Even though this younger son had already taken at least a third of everything the family had, he was back to impoverish the family even more. Already he had been given an expensive ring and costly robe and now a feast. The older son was troubled by the whole business. Though he had remained home, worked hard, there had never been any celebration on his behalf. Kind of different, right? The story ends here. But what if we were to add more to the ending, finishing this story of two brothers with the original story of two brothers, and later on that week, after the big party to celebrate his homecoming, the older son, let's call him Cain, continued to feel jealous and ashamed of the behavior of the younger son. He resented the favor the younger brother had received, and so invited the younger son Abel out into the field where they quarreled, and in a fit of rage, Cain attacked Abel and killed him. The stories of Cain and Abel, the lost lamb and the reckless son are supposed to interrupt us. We earthlings like our bad guys bad and our good guys good. And if God favored Abel, Abel had to be good. And if the lamb was worthy to be rescued, it has to be innocent. And if there is a return celebration for the reckless son, it must be because he is totally gifted and had just been out building character. And face it, we don't know. For all we know, he's going to come home and cure cancer. That's not the point. The Bible doesn't tell us superhero stories. The Bible doesn't give us capes and bad guys. The Bible gives us a glimpse into the complications of life for real people. The Bible calls us into our humanity 
in order to connect our real selves with God. So I'm not trying to poke holes here, and there's a lot of threads to pull, but I am trying to interrupt. I am trying to give you the shock that the first hearers of these stories experienced when Jesus told them, what the heck, Jesus? You can't be serious. God loves that guy? That guy is a total jerk. Notice Jesus does not challenge that assertion. Nope. The poor prodigal is totally innocent, Jesus says. Nope. The whole point that it's not about who is innocent. The whole point is the prodigal can be a total jerk. Totally. That's not the issue. Jesus doesn't challenge that. But what Jesus does challenge is what it means if you're a jerk. What it does mean is you can, what it does not mean, it does not mean if somebody is a jerk that you can discard them, kill them, enslave them, ridicule them ground down on them, exclude them, exile them. That's what it does not mean. And you really, really, really can't claim that that is what God does because that is a blue plastic lie. God doesn't work that way. The Bible challenges us because God loves jerks. Amen? This isn't just good news for Cain, the lamb and the reckless son. This is good news for us. We do not have to wait until we are good enough before God will love us. God loves us right now. God seeks us, finds us, rushes to protect us, though we are not so innocent, not that smart, and not ready to repent. God can be a prudent father, but sometimes also a reckless one, because love comes first, and God's not going to wait for us to get our act together. God's restorative justice works with you right where you stand. Your unreadiness and stubbornness, just not an issue. God knows you are stubborn, newsflash, and he knows that we are not just called to repentance once in a lifetime, but every day. So we persist in doing everything we can to live the Christian life of faithfulness and love of neighbor day by day by day. But make no mistake, we stand together, sister to sister and brother to brother. We are Abel. We are Cain. We have in us the great abiding mercy and restorative power of God. Amen.